Welcome to Whiz Bang Boomer, formerly John Stephen at large. The marketing team said, you got to change the name. Whiz Bang, name, Whiz Bang, Boomer, you're a baby boomer, Whiz Bang Boomer. Thanks team, let's see how it works. I don't care what the title is, I'm more concerned with the content and that my loyal listeners are having a good time. So today is June 10th. 2021, and I'm looking at some noteworthy obituaries, and one of them is of Richard Rubenstein, I believe it's Stein, it could be Stein, I'm going to say Stein, who wrote a book called After Auschwitz, and um, in it, he questioned God. Um, The complete title, by the way, is after Auschwitz, Radical Theology and Contemporary Judaism. Um, I haven't read the book. I'm only going by the old bit here. But here's what he says, and I quote, How can Jews believe in an omnipotent, beneficent God after Auschwitz? He wrote, Traditional Jewish theology maintains that God is the ultimate omnipotent actor in the historical drama. It has interpreted every major catastrophe in Jewish history as God's punishment of a sinful Israel. I fail to see how this position can be maintained without regarding Hitler and the SS as instruments of God's will. To see any purpose in the death camps, he continued, the traditional believers forced to regard the most demonic anti-human explosion in all history as a meaningful expression of God's purposes. The idea is simply too obscene for me to accept. Wow. Now, remember Time Magazine had a cover and the obit mentions it. Is God dead? I remember that Time Magazine cover. cover. So, apparently, uh, the late Dr. Rubenstein... Um, was one of the people that spurred this movement. And I give him credit for raising these questions. I raise questions like this all the time, and I'm sure others do. Um, Now, um, I'm looking at Further on in the obit, there's a quote by Dr. Rubenstein. It says, God is the ocean and we are the waves, was a favorite metaphor of his. And um, another quote by another professor, Berenbaum, says, this, I'll say, that doesn't make human life meaningless, I, Dr. Rubenstein's um, approach. It gives us the opportunity to create meaning. Wow, very profound, very profound. Um, It's mind-boggling to know that six million people were killed and one million of them were children. I'm just, I can't even speak of it without wanting to cry. And I met a, um, I met a person that interviewed Holocaust survivors, and I 
took some of his interview notes and I formed a play. Most of it is an interview with a person that survived the Holocaust. And uh, I wrapped uh, a story around it, around the interview notes. And I have to tell you that just I, I could tell you one part of this uh, this is a quote well I'm paraphrasing from the survivor who I didn't I didn't meet the survivor I met the interviewer who gave me his notes from the Holocaust survivor and she said that she was being jammed into the gas chamber door it was packed just picture a subway car that's packed on rush hour morning and you're trying to push your way in. Well, in this case, the Nazis were trying to push her way into the jammed gas chamber and she was fighting to not go in and she, she was preventing the Nazis from closing the door. She was essentially in the doorway, the way she described it. And she was, they were pushing her, trying to jam her in so they can close the door. And she said her nails peeled off from holding on uh, to prevent them from pushing her all the way. And finally, she said they pulled her out to get her out of the way because they had to meet their schedule. They had to meet their schedule that day, right? I'm sorry, it gets me angry and upset. So they closed the door. She later on was transferred to other places and then she eventually uh, got out and survived um, a holocaust survivor did come to see the performance of that play I have a picture of it somewhere I have to but I'm digressing again so back to this um, sobering uh, idea of and this um the premise of this um, delayed Dr. Rubenstein's um, view that and I, I have to side with him in that in that my view is that we have free will this is what I believe he believed I didn't read the book humans have free will that it wasn't God that was having the Nazis do what he what they did. In other words, if God had has planned every movement, every thought, every um, every uh, disease, every murder, every person that lives to one hundred, everything's planned out. That to me, what I'm reading in this obituary says that God knew or planned to have Hitler um, murder six million Jews. For what purpose? For what purpose? Why would God do that? Why would God do that? So that's what I say. Why would God do that? I say God would not do that. Others may say it was God's will to make that happen. Really? God willed that? And this is why there are so many atheists and this is why there are so many people that hate religion and actually hate the idea of God. Because they say, what God 
would allow this to happen or would plan for this to happen or would have a hand in it would, or put energy into it, whatever, however you want to phrase it. What God would stand by and watch this happen? So, what I'm gathering from Dr. Rubenstein's obituary was that he said that. He said God did not dictate that. So we could also come to the conclusion he didn't dictate other horrible happenings like the pandemic. God did not send the plague, the bubonic plague, the black plague that killed 100 million people. Oh wait, that was the Spanish flu. God does not cull the herd. God does not say, I'm going to kill 100 million people over the next 10 years just to send a little message. I don't think God does that. I don't want to believe that God does that. I don't want to believe that. Now there are people out there that are going, blasphemy! Because you think you know. You think you know. Because that's what you were taught. That's what you interpreted from reading Bible verses, and then you sit back and go, "Oh no, he sent the he sent the um, you know he launched the virus out of the Chinese lab on purpose." He God was in cahoots with the Chinese. Let the virus out, take down America. This way, we could become a communist country and not uh, be allowed to practice our faith. That's what you may believe. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I believe maybe there was an accident. Well, I don't believe anything. I think there may have been a lab accident. I think there may be a rogue virus. Uh, Obviously, there is. That jump from an animal to a human, whatever. And we're in this mess. Again, it goes down to... It comes down to free will. It comes down to a little bit of luck being in the right place at the wrong place, the right time, whatever, wrong place, wrong time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that is what I'm bringing out of this obit. That is the, the point I am bringing out of that obituary, and may he rest in peace. Now, I see another obituary. Uh, wow. Cornelia... Oberlander, a far-seeing landscape architect, dies at 99. Wow. She apparently, um, it says, her acclaimed modernist but naturalist designs recognize the fragility of the climate and the social effects of parks and playgrounds. And there's a beautiful picture of her uh, tossing an apple or a peach up into the air. So, she was a climate control person. Oh, there's no climate problem. I can hear the people now. Oil prices are going up. Relax. Take it easy. So she's a German-born landscape, uh, German-born Canadian landscape architect who blended naturalist reading from the Times, who blended naturalistic designs and modernist ideals and recognized early on the urgency of climate change, designing public spaces to mitigate its effects, died on May 22nd in Vancouver, British Columbia. She was 99. What a wonderful life. It seems that she, uh, wow, she, she 
led a long life and she had a purpose and she believed in uh, saving the planet. As a quote here, Cornelia brought science to the conversation. Um, it's a long obituary. She was a landscape architect who studied housing, who studied cities. A critic wrote, her life, he continued, was deeply intertwined with the growing presence of the modern movement in the United States and then in Canada. Um, very interesting. I'm not going to... Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, look at this. With the Nazis rising to power in the 1930s, Cornelia, like so many other Jewish children, was forbidden to attend her school. Holy cow. I didn't know this. I didn't study this article before I started reading it. The family's passports were taken away, as was the steel business that was the source of their wealth. Their butler began to hide his own money under a rug for the family so that it might help them should they escape. They were finally able to flee in late 1938, two weeks after Kristallnacht, the Nazi pogrom against Jews. Oh my God. Wow. It's, I didn't know there was a link. I didn't know there was a link. Wow. This is incredible. These two people that died did have a linkage. Um, so she would go on to design 70 urban playgrounds, mostly in Canada. Um, and my mother here, I think this is her, his son. My mother, quote, my mother lived between two pandemics, Tim Oberlander, said Tim Oberlander. And her story connects with the arc of German Jewish history. Wow. Wow. This is really incredible. Check out the um, check out the times for these obituaries so you can read the full obits. Now here's another one. Incredible. Incredible. Now this those two people lived in ninety seven and ninety nine. Respectively, here's one, um, another one. I'm reading. Jessica Morris, whose brain cancer was her cause, dies at 57. Byline: After her diagnosis of glioblastoma in 2016, she founded an organization that advocated for patients and research. And here's a quote from her: "When you're suddenly told that you have a condition that is considered terminal," she said. The one thing you desperately need is psychological support, and it's not there. How sad. So reading from this article by Neil Genslinger of the New York Times, I, I haven't credited the other writers. I'm, I apologize to the Times for not doing that to this point. All in today's New York Times, June 11, 2021, these obituaries. Um, so Jessica Morris, who turned her experience, I'm quoting from the article, with Glio blastoma, a deadly brain cancer, into a crusade for more research and patient-directed approach to treatment. Founding the organization Our Brain Bank died of complications of the disease on Tuesday at her home in Park Slope, Brooklyn. She was 57. She, um, she her husband has expressed uh, hope that um, the fight will continue. I'm just uh, paraphrasing quickly. Here's a quote from 
from her, from um, Jessica Morris. She said, I was hiking upstate New York when I started to feel inexplicably, inexplicably odd, she wrote. I wanted to alert my companions that something was wrong, but there was a disconnect between the, des the desire to speak and my ability to do so. Then my eyelids closed, and that was that. A full-blown seizure, followed by an ambulance ride off the mountain and brain surgery two days later. Can you imagine the uh, horror of going through that? It's an aggressive brain tumor, and it killed President Biden's son, Beau, in 2015, and Senator John McCain in 2017. Uh, median survival is 14 months. Only one in 20 people survive for five years. But this woman, uh, Jessica, um, I tell you, this the, these are incredible. Jessica Morris uh, dedicated the rest of her time to helping others. Um, she knew that something needed to be done it says is a quote and that patients like her had enormous power Dr. Iwamoto said in a statement um, this is uh, Dr. Iwamoto of Columbia University's Department of Oncology and he goes on to say despite being busy with the tumor treatments and looking after three children Jessica found the time and energy to be a pioneering advocate of a new contract between the medical profession and the patient community. So it's called Our Brain Bank. Our Brain Bank is the name of the organization. Wow. I'm scrolling through the article. Uh, the doctor said, uh, Dr. Iwamoto said she donated her, her quote, she donated her brain he said in a phone conversation. She was very passionate about passionate about research for her and for everyone else. Rest in peace, Jessica Morris. Wow. Wow. There are so many uh, of these obits. I will stop at this point. There are so many. Um, I give... I give credit to the Times for calling out people like these who, who really applied themselves, who worked for the betterment of humankind, who raised thoughts and ideas, who went out and applied themselves, whether it be philosophy or um, whether it be helping others, helping the planet. May those three souls rest in peace for uh, what their lives brought to all of us. Okay, uh, going back to Cornelia Oberlander, the article is by Penelope Green. I want to give credit. And um, I want to go back and give credit to the other article again New York Times no plagiarizing here folks you could tell we're live here because uh, I'm continuing 
to scroll through the New York Times, which I feel is an incredible, a great, a great newspaper. Because look, look at what we have found here. Uh, oh, here's another one. Richard Robinson dies 84, turns Scholastic into an empire. With the help of Harry Potter, the Magic School School Bus, and Babysitter's Club, he created the largest publisher and distributor of children's books by Sam Roberts. That's who wrote this article. He took over his father's company, Scholastic, and transformed it into the behemoth in the children's book industry with the Harry Potter Hunger Games series and titles like the Magic School Bus and Goosebumps. Died on Saturday in Chilmark, Massachusetts, on Martha's Vineyard. He was 84. Another amazing story. He often considered reading a civil right. Okay, Mr. Robinson, who often said he considered reading a civil right, prided himself prided himself in reviving books and promoting narrative storytelling as a muscular muscular rival to video games in the competition for children's attention. Publishing the Harry Potter books has changed the company and made it more visible, he told the Times in 2005. But what everybody feels the most about Harry Potter is that it brought kids to the reading process who had never been readers. Now, I saw my son read these books. He poured through them. I think he read them twice. So that says a great deal right there. He was born May 15th, 1937, the day I was married. Oh, wow. I mean, I was born, I was uh, married on May 15th, 1983. Um, his father started Scholastic, evidently. Okay, yes, okay. And I'm just scrolling through the article about how Scholastic grew. Go check this article at the Times. Uh, Mr. Robinson, the person that passed away, joined, joined Scholastic as an associate editor in 1962. Um, his father died suddenly in 74, and he be and Richard became the president. He was named chief executive a year later and elected chairman in 1982. So he spent a large part of his life um, on uh, this cause. On the, it's a business, but also a, a very good cause of bringing, of in, uh, providing incentive to um, children to read. Going back to Richard Rubenstein's articles by Joseph Berger. Joseph Berger. Uh, the list goes on here. And I, uh, the Times also um calls out people who died from COVID. They, they actually, and also, uh, so Cornelia Oberlander, the ar uh, architect, landscape architect, did die from COVID. Um, they also have a section called Overlooked, people that are not household names. Overlooked no more. Let's check one more out. Overlook no more, Granville Redmond, painter, actor, friend, known for his California landscapes, deaf since childhood. He acted with Charlie Chaplin in silent films, an early example of deaf representation in Hollywood. There's a picture of, of him with Charlie Chaplin in 1918. This is by Will Dudding. This article is part of, an, of the Overlook series 
uh, of obituaries about remarkable people whose deaths beginning in 1851 went unreported by the Times. Wow! So this person appeared in Granville Redmond, appeared in seven Chaplin films. Seven! He was an artist. They're showing a painting known for his paintings of golden poppies, the state's official flower, I guess, of California. Um, amazing. Chaplin supported Redmond's painting career, offering him a room to paint in the loft of an unused building on his studio lot. On breaks, Chaplin would visit Redmond there and quietly watch him work. And he has a quote from Charlie Chaplin. Redmond paints solitude, and yet by some strange paradox, the solitude is never loneliness. End quote. Chaplin told this to Alice T. Berry in a 1920 article for the Jewish Deaf, a magazine. That's the name of the magazine. The Jewish, a Jewish Deaf. Wow. See, I didn't know about all this. Did you? The Jewish Deaf. A magazine called The Jewish Deaf. Uh... Here's another quote from Chaplin. You know, something puzzles me about Redmond's pictures. Chaplin was quoted as saying in 1925 in The Silent Worker, a newspaper for the deaf community. And then quote again, there's a wonderful joyousness about them all. Look at the gladness in that sky, the riot of color in those flowers. Chaplin continued. Sometimes I think that, that the silence for which he lives has developed in him some sense, some great capacity for happiness in which we others are lacking. Now, that's a beautiful quote. And Chaplin had a great heart. He really did. He had a, an extraordinary view, um, a sensitivity, and apologize to Mr. Redmond. I'm talking about Charlie Chaplin now. But um, if you look at Chaplin's films, um, such as um, City Lights and, um, uh, you know, when... There was uh, limelight, city lights in particular, because there was a blind girl in city lights. Um, and, um, and Chaplin brought out, you know, he wrote a, he wrote a story around it and, and he, and he, um, he showed that love can take place between people you know the woman couldn't see him he was a, a tramp and yet she grew to love him and um, it, it showed that um, it's what's inside right it's what's inside so give Charlie Chaplin credit and I'm really freelancing here I'm, I'm googling um, and I Apologies to, uh, that, well, Charlie Chaplin passed away too, so obviously. The films, the films. So the fact that he was friends with this person, I didn't even know that. I didn't know that he was. I did never heard of this person. So again, the Overlook No More section of the New York Times. Beautiful. The Kid was another one I I again when Charlie Chaplin showed us because Charlie Chaplin wrote these films directed them started them wow he was amazing so overlook look no more Granville Redmond painter he was a painter who knew Charlie Chaplin um I'm trying to see when this person died though they're bringing 
uh, trying to see when he passed, actually passed away. Because this is, this section is, is talking about people who, uh, this particular section of the time is people who passed away who were not, whose deaths were not called out originally, I believe. That's what the purpose of this section is. I might have to write to the Times and ask them. Redmond died of complications of a heart attack May 24th, 1935. Holy cow, he was 64. Charlie Chaplin died at 88 in 1977, per the article. So Charlie lived many years without his friend. I'm blown away by the people that I've just talked about. And thank you to the Times for writing extensive articles about the beauty of those people. And it gives me hope. Hope for the human race, as they say. Because there are people that, again, work extremely hard to make things better for those around them, whether it's painting a picture, designing a park, starting a organization, writing a book to provoke thought and idea. Anyway, this is Whizbang Boomer, and that's today's, uh, well, that's this episode, calling out some obituaries, June 11th, 2021. Hey, tell your friends and family about how incredible this podcast is, if you like it. If you don't like it, shh, don't say a word. Why am I asking this? Eh, eh, I'm taking the time to record it, so why not? It'd be nice to have other people hear it. Thanks so much. Enjoy your day or night.